Criminal Magic. Chapter 11. Tuesday, 9.15, GMT-5. Climb if you must. Jump if you must. But for God's sake, remember to pack a parachute. Each time he clips with his left hand, Answer is confronted with evidence of his mortality. The purple dots and slashes of new scar tissue forming over the puncture wounds on his forearm look like a tattooed date from the Mayan code. A falcon settles in its airy just a few meters off. Answer hangs for a moment, taking the opportunity to shake out and rest, watching as the raptor disgorges food for its chicks. On the distant hillside off to the west, he sees sunlight glinting from field glasses. Someone's watching from the house. Far below, at the base of the cliff, cattle graze on the mat of alfalfa planted in a strip along the riverbank. Warm air slips by, hitching a ride on thermals plucking at the rock face. Life is good. Feel pretty strong. He's surprised, and pleased. To be trad climbing roots, even five nines, only three weeks after taking a beating like that. Aches still haunt his body, a tightness in the left shoulder, soreness when he stretches at the waist. There's a groove in his side just above the hip bone, and bits of gravel and cement are still migrating to the surface at his hairline. The ribs were the worst, couldn't breathe properly for days, but today he feels loose, gives himself a little grin. Yeah, training. The owl's call rings in his memory. The mystery of magical power. Answer grins. He chalks up and jams taped fingers into the crack, yarding off his strong right arm as he begins ascending toward Waco, where he can place the next piece of protection. Twenty meters below, his climbing partner Franco hangs at the belay, waiting for Answer to finish the pitch so he can clean the route. As he rocks over to his toe and wedges his palm into a narrow slot, Answer thinks, following. Never as much fun as leading, man. So graceful. Through the sport lenses, she watches the flow of movement, the intimate respect of a climber for the rock. The climbing seems like a partnership, a sort of a ritual dance, where the flexible climber sinuously demonstrates, with each successive move, an accommodating respect for the implacable lead offered by the rigid step of the arete. The notion brings a smile to her lips. You've known each other for a while, then? Coordinator lowers her binoculars and turns towards the newly arrived other woman. Yes, we have some history together, maybe twenty years. Coordinator squares herself to lose, taking a good look at her. Same height as me, maybe Japanese? She has an enormous amount of hair. The braid falls almost to her knees. Her eyes, like green, blue, no, turquoise. She's pretty thin, the fingers long and graceful looking. And you? Luce returns the inquiry. How do you know him? Business. Coordinator mooches her lips and nods. You could say we're business associates. Ah. Luce's upper body rocks a gentle acknowledgement. I've never met any of Answer's associates. Professionals, I mean. His work seems to make it hard for him to make friends. She touches the dark-haired woman's field with her energy. A cold water race alive with figures, perhaps fish. Below the surface, another current, excitement, warmth. She can feel a counter probe. This is a very intuitive woman, untrained, but still. Oh, I imagine he'd have friends if he found them useful, coordinator says, raising the binoculars to have a look for herself. Since she had first seen the lithe-figured woman gliding up the road leading to the house, coordinator has had a presentiment about her presence. Who is she? A lover? Does the guy even have a sex life? Not likely, coordinator thinks to herself. He's got the social skills of an Australian logger, but then what the hell does she mean by history? Are you here on business, then? Luz asks. Business, coordinator mutters. Yeah, at least that part's straight up. So you are in the same... Luz pauses, searching for the right phrase. Line of work? She moves into the shade of the overhanging roof. Hot, huh? 
Are you in the collective? Is that what I mean? Coordinator is a little ticked at all the questions. I ask questions. There's something slightly off about this woman. She seems so at home here. But from everything Coordinator has seen, the house is definitely of a single man, a distinctly unattached one. Have you been here since the accident? There it is. Coordinator feels the brush of an attitude, something like condescension, but not quite dismissive. It's as if Luz already knows the answers to these questions. Like this whole conversation is just a formality, and I may as well just let her tell me what's going on. Yeah, interesting thing about accidents, Coordinator says, looking Luz squarely in the eyes. Some people have a knack for getting into them. Just unlucky, I guess. Yes, unlucky, Luz repeats. She dips her head toward her shoulder, roughing an itch on her chin. Although Luz's face is partially hidden by the shade line of the roof, Coordinator has a feeling that there is a look of amusement in those eyes. Her friend nearly gets blown away, and she finds it funny. Do you live around here? Coordinator resumes her work mode, getting information. Over there. Luz points to the south, beyond the mountains. Where, like Medellin, Popayan? The question is a natural extension. Huaraz. I live in Huaraz, in my family's house. Peru. Coordinator is hot. Peru? This chick is getting stranger by the minute. Peru's a little more than a day hike. She strolls over and takes a seat at the table under the overhanging veranda. The view from here is spectacular, she thinks. Every day I've been, the weather's the same. It is beautiful here, no? Luz is watching her. The climate, so consistent. Coordinator shoots her a look. Luz closes her eyes, as if to rest them, and she feels Coordinator's projection, the torrent of judgment, the mayhem of uncertainty flowing out. But seeing is the wrong word. That's an illusion. Unless you look through, move beyond the sense of sight, an image itself may be nothing more than the product of a suggestible mind, a mirror of form and shape, owing all its existence only to your own imagination. Take care for what you see, child, her grandmother would warn. Much of what your mind carries to you is from outside of your own making, an illusion of reality, which comes from within you. The people carry many beliefs, and all of these are no more than noise to the seer. True shapes, true stories, come in different forms, in different ways. Have you ever been to Peru? Luz asks again. No reason now to disclose capabilities. Each of us has our work to do, and this woman is a warrior. She will be useful. My home place is at the Andes, at the foot of a well-known mountain called the Huascaran. Answer came once, climbing mountains. That is where I met him, near my home. No, I can't say I've ever been in that part of the world. Coordinator squeezes her tone into a civil range. She's certain there's some power here lurking behind the rigid discipline of its owner. How did you hear about Answer's accident, she asks. A mutual acquaintance called and told me that Answer had been hurt, so I came along as soon as I could, Luz replies. I know he is not so, you might say, social, so I felt it would be good if I was here. Luz leaves the exposed veranda and walks into the house, where she begins filing through a stack of antique record discs. She plucks one from the rack labeled Jazz, steps over to the perfectly maintained turntable, and puts it on. A flow of sinuous melody runs through the house, rising from the open French doors and lifting off into the open air. Do you like it? Luz floats back outdoors with a smile of pleasure painted across her face. Jobim, coordinator says, nodding. Very big in Macau. Quite the record collection he keeps. Luz stretches out on the bench set against the exterior kitchen wall. I know only that Answer enjoys music and that he doesn't like distilled electronic sounds. Yeah, interesting, coordinator allows. You've known him for a long time. Has he always been so focused on simple things? I mean, look at this place. The sound system is 60 years old. Don't get me wrong. It's very good, but it's all primitive. Everything from the stove to the windmill on the well is just basic. And I'm sure you know what he does for a living, Mr. No Tech and all that. What's it about? Perhaps you should ask him yourself. Luz is lying on her back, one arm thrown across her face, 
knees bent so her toes can wrap around the bench's end. But that is not what she's interested in. The other woman can figure these things out for herself. Why have you stayed here after your work was done? Luz asks. What work are we talking about? What brought you here? The work of protecting him. Luz's tone is transparent. Matter of fact, her question flat as glass. It doesn't leave any hook for an argument. Ah, I'm glad we're doing away with the niceties, Coordinator says with a little smile, skewing her chair to face the reclining figure. I came down here to save his sorry ass, and I stayed for the same reason. The number of people who've died of lead poisoning right around this house recently points to something unusual, wouldn't you say? And there's no better time to finish the job than when your target is down on one leg. Luckily for us, nobody else has shown up. Maybe they got wind when nobody called in that this was a better graveyard than a vacation spot. It's certainly quieter than what I'm used to. She leans forward in her seat, drilling loose with a hawk-like stare. You see, generally, I'm all business. Work all the time. Work, work, work. It's no secret why I'm here. I've got a job to do, but you... Now there's another story. I don't play games, but I am wondering what yours might be. I am here following a vision she says as she slides upright on the bench, drawing her feet beneath the seat so that she sits poised on her toes like a leggy bird, ready to leap into flight. A voice emerges from the shadows cast by the back corner of the house. Careful with that kind of talk, Lucita. The lady's shy on believing anything she can't break. Answer steps onto the veranda and across to where Luz is rising to greet him. Amigo, gusto de verte. ¿Cómo te vas? ¿Cómo has estado? Bien, felizmente, he says. He gives her a quick embrace and dips to plant a light kiss on each cheek. You look good, he says, admiring the slender power of the woman in front of him. She looks more like a mountaineer than a shaman, still hard as a goddamn quartz spine. From the look of you, you must have been down to Chile or Argentina this last year. It's been a whole year, hasn't it? I'm assuming you've introduced yourselves? Good. Saves me having to sort out the social this and that. Tea? Did either you put on water? No? He turns into the kitchen and sets a pot on the stove. No time for the vital details. I imagine you were too busy talking about the weather to cover that. You're well? Luz asks, edging into the kitchen against the paneled cabinets. Your houseguest was telling me that you are recovering. To watch you climb, it would make a person believe you got no injury at all. Ah, a little soreness through the ribs. I'm alright. Headache once in a while. An aw shucks grin slides onto his face. He pitches his voice down so that coordinator doesn't hear. Thanks for the flyby, Lucita. Those boys would have slabbed me if I hadn't woken up. She nods seriously. Do you know who they were? Why they came? This is the second time in recent days to come so close. Coordinator responds from outside. I told Answer that House Intel feels it has something to do with the Petro Boys, but they're not really certain what the angle is. The job here seems to have been connected to a corporate kidnap that burned down on us in Portland. The target was a high-level gizmo in the Petro game, and there's a lot of very serious contests going on over the biggest leftovers in that field. But from what Coordinator says, Answer continues, the whole play might just be a way to make collectives look bad. Could be the biz boys got our new stats on how much gross we've been doing and decided to reintegrate outsourcing and consolidate their political problems in one nice package. A little revenue stream play like that. But is it possible there are others? People willing to make things look this way? Luz asks. Her face is pinched in concentration as she minds the superficial story, trying to match it with something she is not letting out. Coordinator shrugs. There are pieces that don't line up, she says. Let's say some Petro higher-ups decided to eliminate the noise they think the Collective is generating on their bottom line. Why follow Answer here? Why make more than one play to slab the whole team? What's the motive? It'd be a lot easier and more effective to sandwich the Collective between some failed deal with lots of collateral damage. A little out-of-hand terrorism, some big pollution job turned into a disaster, but why set us up on a shitty little snap? I'm on with House's guess that this whole thing's a setup, Answer says, downing his tea in a single gulp and stepping back outside. 
Somebody sets us up so the Petro boys will think the collective is working both sides of the street, starting up a little turf war, executive termination scheme. That gets them on the collective's case and puts us on the defensive with practically no cost. Cheap distraction. That chimes with our data, but where's the angle in killing us? Coordinator says. How does anybody know they killed us? If the stage is right, it just looks like a little in-house breakout that calls the integrity of collectives into question, suggests that it's unraveling. Maybe it opens the door to some opportunistic interest that can scramble our eggs and get us out of the way. No matter how you weigh the game, it ends up breaching a number of established conventions, and somebody is looking to exploit the breach, using us as a wedge. So whose wire are we walking? Answer and coordinator both turn towards Luce, who is looking thoughtful. A dream came to me, she says simply. In the dream, we are together, the three of us here. She nods to include coordinator. We three, and one other, a dangerous man. We are walking in a high place, a place where the clouds live. We're going up a mountain into the deep forest. We walk backwards. Many animals are coming down from the high place. They run and walk past us, leaving that place in such numbers they flow down the mountain like water. She closes her eyes, reaching to recapture every detail and feel the vision. We come to an opening. Flowers are all around. At the edge of the opening, there is an old man, crouched like a cat. When we come to where he sits, I ask him if he can tell us which way will take us to the top. He says that we cannot get to the top by climbing the mountain. To get to the top, you must go away from here, he says. You will find the top only by refusing to climb. But old man, I say, the top is not any other place but here. This is the mountain. To get to the top, we must climb. It is an illusion, he says. Go away from here into the lowlands where the waters weep together. Seek what you must find in the place you are certain it cannot be. That is the way to the end of this path. Then the old man stands up and begins to walk down. We look where he has been sitting and see that he has left behind a small bag lying on the ground. I turn to call out, tell him he has forgotten something, but he has disappeared into the trees. Coordinator feels a sour turning in her stomach. More mystic bullshit. Answer, Luz continues, you take up the old man's pack and you open it. Inside there are three things. One is a piece of orange plant, the size of your thumb. Next there's a fragment of shining stone pressed into a panel of wood the size of your palm and held there with pitch. Then, wrapped in a square of deer hide, there is a beautiful obsidian blade the length of your long finger, whose edge has been struck sharp as a razor. That is all. Coordinator sits, quietly staring off toward the cliffs. The breath of pasture land scented by eucalyptus and oleander blossoms perfumes the veranda as Carlos Jobim's guitar serenades the splendor of a warming morning. Tuesday, 9.25, GMT-5 Looking down from his hillside perch, the rangy northerner watches his Ua helpers moving up the steep slope toward his position. In the valley below, almost two kilometers away, the technological wreckage of the Chavez Pipeline construction camp spills its filthy scar across the jungle floor. 400 meters beyond that lies today's target, where a core of greased and rigid automated welder exoskeletons stretch their robotic sinews at the river's edge. He feels a complex mix of fascination and horror as he watches. In the abstract, the telescoping self-extending pipe is a real marvel. As an engineer, he could spend hours just watching it fulfill its savagely successful mechanical destiny, but for today, all he can really appreciate is that it'll soon be gone, and the thrashed, mud-thickened stripe of river lying alongside the work path will be temporarily returned to its pristine quietude. At least, that is, until the camp gets its next construction shipment and the destructive cycle begins again. How long will this go on? 
Ecotagers have been working on this problem in one way or another for almost 50 years, since the first bomb exploded on the old Limon pipeline down in Block 1. But each time is just like the last time, each time as dangerous as that. He watches the boys struggling toward him, through the wall of undergrowth that cloaks the ground. He's proud of their courage. They are young and eager enough to have braved the menace of wildly flinging welder arms in order to place the explosives. So far, it's all gone smoothly. It is good, in his judgment, that there are eager young people to help in this kind of strike, since the elder Uwa would have nothing to do with such an action. But the past few years have provided ample evidence to the young that their elders' peaceful way of life just can't accomplish the gains that are needed to keep the flood of technology from displacing their people totally. Fire with fire, they say now, leaving the older folks to shake their heads and cluck, wishing perhaps that they'd had the courage to commit the mass suicide they once contemplated. Crisp air nips at his cheek, tempting his nose to run. Strands of mist hover tantalizingly close overhead. It seems that if he stood and stretched, he could draw in one of them with his hand. It is extraordinarily quiet. It's always like this around these jack-off sites. Would I hang out here with the whole world outside sounds like it's blowing up all the time? Shit. He spits a wad of snuff into the earth. Off to the west juts the great spinal column of the Andes, each peak striving to rise higher than the last from its earthen anchor. The effect is like a majestic elevated stair, whose steps rise successively until they disappear into the wreath of distant cloud. Eastward lies the great sweep of the flood-suffocated river valley, where the Llanos of the Orinoco Basin stretch like a saran-wrapped glaze toward the horizon. This is what they're here to save. The northerner needs no more than what he can see from this vantage to justify the violence he is here to deliver. To his mind, this reprisal is a fitting and serviceable contest to the industrial mayhem being visited on the face of this miraculous place by an anonymous industrial enemy. The man checks his watch and trains his binoculars on the camp, eyeing it for signs that a quirt, one of the FARC's quick reprisal teams, is nearby. He sees no sign of their presence, which is a good thing, a very good thing. So far, everything is swinging. Roberto, the younger of the two boys, heaves himself into the staging area, dragging one of the two heavy cord spools just behind. Nino is close on his heels. The two of them collapse, panting and sweating in the small clearing. The northerner crawls over and leans down to clasp both by the shoulders. Job well done, boys. Very well done. He gathers up hunks of spooled fuse and drags them over to a scrap of particle board with trip switches and batteries attached. Using a multi-purpose tool, he strips the wire ends, wrapping each carefully around a terminal. Easy jobs for Norteño, huh? He says, grinning over at the two soaking young men. He pitches the binoculars to Nino. Watch now, fruits of your labor and all that. The boys, already crowing inside themselves at their success, crowd in front of him, jostling for position. All right, Norteño says. Anyone at the target? Nino squints through the binoculars and sees several figures walking toward the river, but Roberto answers. Claro. The northerner gives the last check, certifying that the connections of the firing board are tight, and then he says, Goddamn, then. Fire in the hole. He drops both switches, and seconds later, there are two quick thuds in the valley below. With a bloom of smoke and a gout of fire, the jungle floor under the robotic extender gantries rises up and begins shaking them off, like a dog emerging from a puddle. The air is a mass of wreckage, smoke, dust, and fire. The tall observer recalls childhood nights gauging the distance of thunder by the interval between the light and the sound as the first rolling report reaches their hilltop. Nino, binox, he says, dropping the firing board at his feet. He scans the pipeline route from the work camp up to the target site. Beneath the explosive haze, it now looks like a section of moonscape somehow transplanted from the vacuum of space to the cloud forest of Venezuela. The smoking heat rendered remains of machinery are strewn around, and it looks to him as if the shockwave has blown back through the course of piping nicely, ripping welds a good 500 meters down the line towards the camp. 
He lowers the binoculars and smiles broadly. Beautiful, he says. God damn, now get the fuck out of here. He wrenches the firing board free of the cables and stuffs it into a backpack and races to catch up with the boys who are already galloping through the low brush along a root blaze into the trees. Within two minutes, they're nearing a wall of forest canopy when, echoing up from the river canyon, they hear the uniquely shrill wail of jet-propelled mini-rotors. God damn it, Northerner shouts at his boys. Run, motherfuckers, run! Screamers. Damn, there was a quirk after all. As he runs, pushing his legs with every scintilla of power, he reaches behind his back and strips off two pieces of narrow alloy tubing, velcroed onto either side of his pack. The first line of defense against getting hit by a screamer is zippering. They're not far off now, maybe 60 seconds to the trees, 60 more to contact. Could have been clean, his mind winds up for a rant. He clips the tube sections together as he runs, then snags a ring on his vest and tears the flap open. Inside, five small mortars hang on the cloth panel. He snatches one of the missiles and slots it into the breach at the bottom of his launcher. Even with earplugs, the noise of the approaching minicopters is nearly unbearable. The ever-present child engineer in him cannot help but appreciate the technological efficiency of the two-man hunter-killer ships the courts use as tactical pursuit. Must have been a close working relationship between the PSYOP guys and the mechanical engineers, sound and fury, strike the fear of God into the enemy, then prove that he was right to be afraid. No firing, no shadow, they can't see me, yet. He smacks a gas cartridge into the chamber behind the mortar, rolls the tube upside down, and sets it off. There is a quick ripping hiss, something like the sound of a zipper, that gives this portable weapon its nickname, as the slider blows out of its launch slot. Turn and run like hell. Behind him, the gas-propelled canister sails into the air. At 100 meters, it blows apart as an internal pressure switch activates a discharge of expanding gas. A sudden stain paints the sky a pale pink. Anyone watching might take the quirky combination of a sharp-edged daylight, blue sky, and pink haze as a photo op. The halo of color expands within three seconds, into a cloud of mist about 300 meters in diameter. The lead quirt screamers plow into the vapor, and suddenly where there were five, there are just two. The jet-propelled turbines of the attack craft ignite the supercombustible gas from the northerner's weapon, setting off an airburst that consumes both birds with temperatures so hot only parts shredding and plowing into the surrounding vegetation are made of steel. Anything carbon is just vaporized. A third screamer tumbles end over end into the jungle, eaten whole by shrapnel from one of the others, its crew the unfortunate victims of a fascination with close formation flying. Nortenio is knocked down briefly by the concussion, but quickly regains his feet and shoves ahead. From a pant leg, he withdraws a handful of marble-sized balls, no seams. He rolls and shakes them violently together in his palm to activate, before flinging them all around him. He keeps running as fast as he can, and then repeats the act a few meters later. Each tiny ball is a friction-activated chemical generator that fires off an infrared signal in the same spectral band as that of a person. It won't fool all of them, but something's better than nothing. The boys are gone, disappeared into the forest running for their lives. Smart. And just as well, they're not armed. He drops behind a tree lying flat on the ground. Screamers are still coming. Don't know how many. He rolls the tube and raises it to his shoulder once again. Give as good as you get, I guess. Such a beautiful day, too. Screamer fire rakes the trees, shredding anything for a hundred meters. The tilt-mounted rotator laser creates havoc in a pattern that has always reminded Northerner of a magazine picture of crop circles. Those mysterious and unexplained openings found during the 70s and 80s, mainly on farmland in the U.S. At the back of his mind, he has always suspected they were the product of covert research for the laser wheel. The firing's random. There's some confusion caused by the noceums, and some caused by the loss of friends. He gets a glimpse of one of the low-flying screamers and lets fly. The round rides its way straight up the small ship, slashing into the Kevlar body with the ease of a knife passing through a horsehair shirt. The heat and impact of the penetration trigger a compressed charge inside the hybrid carbon and a violent explosion. 
Poof. Then there was just one. He hears the last screamer behind him, shooting blindly at what its sniffers say is the source of the missile. A massive blow strikes to his left, and he finds himself suddenly unable to see, lying half-buried in the duff and splintered residue of a blown tree. Part of a branch seems to be on top of his leg, and he can't get it out. The last screamer is not far off. God damn, almost made it to the canopy. At least the boys got out. Can't be too long before some groundies get into the trees, maybe the screamer's ten or fifteen minutes ahead. Payne calls his attention to the leg, but he seems to be able to flex the muscles. And pain can be a good thing. Things get hazy. Time. Place. Someone's rolling him. He hears voices. How long was I lying here? Must have been a while. He's having trouble seeing. Less pressure on the leg. If I could just get to my pistol. The screamer is still here. Why would the screamer still be here? There's a yank on his leg and he hears the hiss of gas. A tremendous explosion. Then he's lifted. He thinks he can see. They're talking to him. Liquid in his eyes. Fuck y'all! I ain't telling you shit! The voices, light musical voices, hands drag him along. The leg hurts like, ugh. They stop. Someone raises his head, tilting it back. Water runs down his chin. Drink! The voice is thickly accented. I don't want to drink, you mother... And he sees the faces now distinctly. Nino and Roberto are looking down at him. Can you get up? They ask. Maybe. The word seems to dribble out. Their faces show no reaction. He tries again. Still nothing. Maybe I'm not coherent. Roberto leans close. No preocupes, we'll carry you, Nino. Norteño always gets the easy jobs, the tall man says. He isn't sure they've understood him, but he can't follow the thought any further, as he loses sight of their faces in the fading blossom of morning light. We will be back next week with Chapter 12 of Criminal Magic. Thank you for joining us. And if you like what you hear, tell a friend about this podcast, and please leave a rating or a view.